welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. My brother Ramy was born five years before me in Paris to our fabulously creative and unique parents, Helene and Yorick. We both grew up in Cedar House, an ancient, art-filled, and uninsulated magical house in the tiny village of Grantchester in England. We both went to the local village school, and then we both went to the same boarding school. At 17, Ramy moved by himself to New York City and became a TV star with his own show called Ramy's People, where he also chronicled the club scene and is himself in the groundbreaking movie Paris is Burning. I used to stay with Ramy and we'd go out till four in the morning and get VIP treatment at every club, which as a 15-year-old was mind-blowing. Ramy then came back to London and co-founded Brighter Pictures with Gavin Hay, which pioneered the reality TV format. Ramy was then head of formats for one of the world's biggest TV companies, ITV. He's made documentaries on artists from our grandfather, the photographer Erwin Blumenfeld, to Francis Bacon, to our mother, the sculptor Helene Blumenfeld. Now Ramy splits his time between incubating young movie-making talent and his highly impactful and sought-after work as a life coach. Ramy's always been there for me, and in reality, we're more like twin brothers. Today, we talk about what it was like growing up together and apart. He's the one with the intact British accent. It was always me who was doing little radio interviews with my Sony cassette recorder, where I was interviewing mostly myself as other people. Which is kind of what we're doing now. Yes, except (laughs) that I should reassure viewers that there are two of us here, in fact. Um, and you're not interviewing yourself. I'm not interviewing myself. We should kind of explain a little bit how we met, um, which was when I was five and you were zero in a house that... That's when you met me. I that's when I met you. Yeah, yeah, I probably didn't even know that you were around. I probably did. Like, oh, there's someone else here to share food with. I better be nice. When do you think you first were aware of me then? I mean, I think the younger sibling... You're probably always aware. I think you're probably genetically pre-programmed to kind of suss out competition for attention and food. Your earliest memories of me are earlier, earlier than my own earliest memories of myself. That's true. And the other thing, of course, is that I had an expectation about you. I was expecting you to be my best friend because that's what I was told a brother or sister would be. So I was age five, waiting for a best friend to arrive. And then this baby came. And you're like, I uh, want to send it back. There was this realization that what I'd been promised hadn't been delivered upon, whereas you had no expectation of an older brother. No. And I wasn't aware of this bargain. No. How could you have been? Well, it wasn't a bargain. It was just, I think... Be nice to Jared. He's going to be your best friend one day. That turned out to be true. That turned out to be true. I'm sort of reminded of that. Auden quote that every family has a secret and that secret is that it's different from other families. And I always felt that our family was very different from other families. And it didn't even seem that other families were different also because we were American, we were Jewish, we were living in a English, white, Protestant village. I felt like we looked different, we sounded different. 
Did, how, did that occur that way to you? I think for me, the Auden quote kind of turned itself on its head and it turns out they were all actually just pretty similar families as opposed to like the cultivation of difference. Like a lot of people, I think, want to fit in, want to be part of society. And both our parents, Helene and Yorick, kind of sought the opposite of that. So not only did they have attributes that made them very different, at the same time, they wanted to accentuate those. I was very, uh, yeah, I think the word would be embarrassed. I was like a born and bred local yokel and all my friends lived next door and none of them had weird parents. I mean, some of them did. I remember Jesse's, Jesse Wilson's parents followed the Maharishi. And I mean, we had a few, it was the seventies, right? And yet our parents were definitely more different. So I wanted to be more similar. Every Me every, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always saw you kind of with them. As my, with my parents. Yeah. Being you like were like very the- exotic. Like Remy's very different too. And Helene and Yorick. You, I always kind of saw you, the three of you actually together more. Like as adults, they're the older people and like they would have very serious conversations with you. And I remember listening to you in the living room with Helene and Yorick and they were just like very academic and these discussions about, you know, the quality of your violin playing and if you just applied <laughs> yourself more and why did Mr. Chernovsky have to tell you to do this again and again? I was like, I fucking want no part of that. Like, Raimi, whatever they're doing, I don't want it. But it's funny that you saw me as part of them because I saw them as them and I wanted to be more normal and different from them. So I can see how that occurred to you that way. I mean, you wore your like red uniform to St. John's. It was like foreign. I was like, what is he doing? He's going to this other school. And no one ever explained to me, like, why is Ramey going to this fancy prep school? And do you know now? Not really. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) why, why did you go to St. John's? Well, because I was at the village school, which you were still at, but you were five and I was nine. And I could barely read. Or do maths. I mean, you were a prodigy. What are you talking about? Don't ruin this image. People I'm say. too old to have this image of you broken. Well, you were reading Kant and you know Nietzsche and experiencing the beauty of Bach, whereas I couldn't read. I was just always like, God, it's just so intimidating being Ramy's brother because he's a genius and like, yeah. But that's just every. Jewish son's story, isn't it? You know, Not the, really. No, that was actually true. So I was coming into contact with kids who were the children of our parents' friends, who were educated privately mostly, and mostly came from schools in London. And they were the same age as me. And they could speak French and German and Latin and had great handwriting and wrote thank you notes. And, and I couldn't do any of that. Do you remember at breakfast, we'd get like postcards, as you would in the 70s, <laughs> And the first thing that everyone would do is look at the handwriting and, you know, Yorick could go, hmm, God, they must be so depressed. Look at the downward lean of this writing. I mean, it's so chaotic, Ramey. Let's have a look at your writing. I'd be like, what? <laughs> that well, was like that's what inhibited me from writing. But, of course. But my writing, age nine, was not, could not express my thoughts. Um, it was which messy. Were... <laughs> which were probably, you know, the 
thoughts of a nine-year-old, but my writing was the writing of a six-year-old. So St. John's was about my effort to better myself. And the problem with going there was that it was a very, very conventional school where, as you say, everyone wore a uniform and I had to fit into the English stereotype of being a kind of, you know, prep school boy. But there was no other boy there who looked like me. There's no other boy with Jewish parents. There was no other boy. I mean, did that occur to you, the Jewish parents thing, even at that age? It did. And I think part of that was kind of bound up with my own sense of being different because I was aware of being gay before I knew what it meant as a sexual thing. I just, I imagined I would spend the rest of my life married to a man. When people said, talked about marriage, I never imagined being married to a woman. And I knew somehow that I was gay before I knew what it was. And so I I felt different in that way. And then I looked different. And then I, my parents were embarrassing, as you say. I mean, I think maybe all parents are embarrassing in some way, but our parents were quite flamboyant and self-expressed and hippie-ish. And they had that big old station wagon that was rusty with French plates. I mean, and if you juxtapose that with, I mean, England now is different, but then it was incredibly tradition-bound, conventional, and like the epicenter, the the pinnacle of that elitism was a school you went to. I mean, it wasn't just English society in general. I mean, this was like the blue bloodiest people with the poshest, toniest accents and, you know, with thousands of years of lineage and like stamps with their name on it. I mean, it was a bizarre place. Yeah. Yeah, really. Very much so. And so. And you didn't fit in. No. Of course not. I sort of wanted to fit in more. And like you said, you fit in with your friends. But they were like hoodlums. It was easy (laughs) because it was easy to go that direction. Like I couldn't have pretended to be posh and Tony, but I could just be an (laughs) idiot. It was a lot easier. That's why I liked them. It was like just they just didn't really care. And they were already like, you know, they already picked upon because there's such a classist society, you know, Carl Dunn and Trevor Bradshaw and those folks. I mean, they were, their dads were roofers. And like, whereas these people, they all wanted to kind of, the people you went to school with, they were very social climbing. Like, it was very British. It's true. And I hated it. So I, I definitely came away from that experience feeling like, however much I might want to fit in, I didn't want to fit into that world. And then and then you went to Beedells, which was a boarding school for artistic types. Where I did fit in much more and felt much happier. And how was that for you? I mean, I was miserable. And I was just turning 10, which I guess in retrospect was a little too young to go to boarding school. I mean, we basically in some ways grew up as only children. And so we lived in a house where I could be picky. I didn't eat hardly anything. I had a lot of freedom because Elaine and Yorick were always traveling. I loved the comfort of my bed and my duvet, and I'd never slept in a room with anyone else. So being thrown into a room with lots of kids who snored and, you know, had all kinds of issues and having to eat all this food that I just was repulsive to me, um, was horrible. So it was a really long, painful transition to, to deal with, but I mean, I remember you came and read to us. I remember the room and it had these like stuffy chairs, wing wing chairs, and you would sit there reading our stories. And I was just like, I want to escape with Raimi. Why is Raimi leaving back to the big school? I want to go. I want to 
can't he take me? Why, why do I have to stay here? So that, yeah. Well, I wish you could have said that. I wish I could have yes. heard that. You seem like one of the cool kids. You know, I think in every school, there are cliques and groups and there's like a cool group at the top and a group of outcasts at the bottom. And you seem like you were in the cool kids group at the top. That's how you seem to me. And I think I, I was, but that comes at a big cost. What was the cost? There's either an emphasis on the part of me that really I want to thrive that I think is my true nature. And then there's things that support the negative parts of you. And boarding school for me supported the negative parts of me. So it was like Lord of the Flies. I mean, at some point, you're going to try and survive through people jumping on your bed and beating you up or, you know, um, whatever the thing is. It is at that age, boarding school is kind of a, a not a healthy, it didn't support being sensitive or talking about your feelings or showing emotional vulnerability. Um, none of those things would have allowed me to survive. So you just kind of work out what are the things that, that I need to do right now. So those are coping mechanisms. I mean, for me, the problem was that the coping mechanisms ultimately became who I was. And that wasn't who I was or wanted to be. It occurs outwardly like you're cool and you got things in control, but inwardly I didn't feel that. Mm. And as a child, to have to be so strong is quite heavy. I mean, certainly. Yeah. And I didn't have the self-awareness, which I kind of feel like you did a lot earlier than I did, to have it occurred to me as a choice. So it didn't feel like a choice. It just felt like this is what I had to do. And I did it as opposed to now I could understand the trade-offs and make decisions as a child. I think you're, you're often forced into corners and it may seem from the outside, like as a decision, but really it's just kind of a, a accumulation of just happenstance and, how you react. It's interesting to think about whether as a child we had a sense of choice or not. I don't know that I really recognized that as a distinction. I don't even think I was aware of that either. And much of what you say about your own experience, I think is true for me of mine. The skills that I felt I evolved to survive school felt like skills that would help me survive life. I mean, birth order, I think, makes a huge difference. You were the oldest. They had ridiculously high expectations for you that were uh, diluted by the time I came around. So I had that huge benefit of, like for me, being at home was easy because they left me alone. For you, being at home seemed torturous because they had these uh, insane and constant level of, God, Remy's not only brilliant. He's a genius. You didn't pretend to be anything. You were very true to yourself. You were very honest about how you projected yourself on the world. By the time I actually came out to you when I was 18 or 19, no, I was 20. I was 20 yeah. when I came out so to I you. I was 15. And you were 15. You already knew. Yeah. Right. That's why I was, so I felt it. very cool about it. Like, 
yeah, what's the big deal? Like I probably dealt with it when I was 11. Right. And it felt like you were to yourself at the time. It seemed like you were really good at fitting in, making friends, being yourself and actually expressing yourself because you were very comfortable with the anger that you felt. So if you were angry, you just shout or say, I'm angry or let everyone know you were angry. Whereas I never felt I had permission to be angry. We, you know, our house, our parents were so softly spoken and quiet and there was definitely anger, but it was never expressed. And so I felt I couldn't ever shout or bang my fist. So I felt like I had to obey all the rules and you were going around breaking them at home and at school. And that felt quite liberated, but time goes so quickly. And it's really interesting for me to kind of be listening to you talking about yourself as this kind of kid who was playing the village idiot and be here with you now with the benefit of, you know, 20 years of your professional career. I think what I was really good at is determining what external success criteria were and somehow molding myself to a path that I knew I could succeed at. So that was partly why I chose the path. And secondly, it was very different from anything that my parents did so that I, I didn't want to be judged. I mean, now in later life, I realized how exhausted I was by the judgments I cast. And I was so pre-programmed into this kind of addiction to accomplishments. Um, it was so less about who I felt I was and so much more about what I did. Um, and I think, again, you're super brave, maybe consciously or unconsciously, but just choosing a career path in the arts. At some point, it felt like you were a glutton for punishment. I mean, like, you know, no matter how incredibly cool and whatever you've done financially and successfully and, you know, you had all these things and, you know, you'd get these comments about, well, you know, maybe you should be making documentaries instead of, you know, breaking boundaries um, with formats for reality TV, you know? Well, you know, our parents' values will always be around traditional arts and achievement in the high arts. There's so much to be proud of. You did amazing you did every, you are everything that they would want you to be and more. Just in terms of what you were saying about me being brave in going into the arts, I think just to be, if you didn't know this already, I went into television to prove that I was good enough. I grew up with a story based on childhood experiences that I wasn't good enough. And I went into television, not because I wanted to prove to my parents that I could be a success in the arts, but actually because television didn't seem like the arts at all to me. And if a million people watched a program and liked it, that was a kind of validation. So I went, I went into television initially to be validated by masses of people who were not our parents, rather than to seek the acceptance of our parents. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of you for is... Well, it was a moment that happened actually. I mean, it started with when you left your job as regional administrator for the EPA and you went on your amazing walkabout. walkabout and you didn't have a job 
and you didn't have anything lined up. And people said, well, what are you doing now? And you just said, nothing. And to not fill that void and to not fill that expectation and to not try and say, I've got exciting plans or projects or things ahead or thinking of this, but just be to be okay with a nothing, that kind of blew my mind because I had always thought that like anyone successful, and I know you've defined success in different ways, but successful in the public sense of having a title and a position and a, and a recognizable kind of brand, when that was taken away, that you would be lost. Because um, I had that for a little bit when, when I worked at ITV Studios and that was something that people were familiar with. And when that was over, I felt a bit bereft. And you'd had it for your whole career and you'd had it at the EPA for eight years. And when it was over, I thought, well, Jared will be, Jared will be lost at least for a little bit. Well, being um, lost is so fun, I just have to say. <laughs> being lost is like the biggest <laughs> gift we can give ourselves. Yeah. And not scary, or scary a little, a little bit no, scary. No, in a good way. For me, unless you're kind of, unless I'm pushing myself and feeling a little bit, a little bit on that edge of, you know, I don't know where I am going. And it's so easy to have external affirmations that for me they kind of propped up a sense of who I was that wasn't necessarily fully me and so being lost like you have to work out where you are who you are where you go next and because I've been working like literally every day since I'd left college more than 25 years ago taking time off and actually spending down savings, which seems like a crazy thing to do, was literally the best thing I could have done. So when I got to the end of the Pacific Crest Trail in Vancouver, there you were. There I was. Thank you so much for doing that. I loved meeting you after the end of that walk. It felt like I was meeting a different brother, similar but different to my brother, Jared. It was as though I had two brothers, one who I'd known up till that moment, and another one who had emerged from the Pacific Crest Trail. And uh, it was great to spend those couple of days with you in Vancouver. And I loved Vancouver and spending time with you. Thank you. How do you think you changed as a result of that incredible odyssey? Well, then, at, at, the, at the end, there's that sense of, I mean, every day you're, you're waiting to finish the trail, but at the same time, you love the trail so much, you don't want to finish it. So by the time you you get to Canada and the weather was stunning and the leaves were changing and the, the air was crisp, I met this woman on my last day and she decided at that point to just turn around just before the end and walk back. She was like, I'm never going to have better days than this. <laughs> I was definitely excited to finish. It had taken a lot out of me. And I mean, I think the the biggest change that you feel immediately leaving the trail is just more present, more able to be, as opposed to thinking about all these different things. I felt very calm, which I don't think I'd ever felt quite that calm and not rushed, not stressed, 
just able to be. Definitely felt like you were on a different frequency, but I remember how hard it was in those early days for you to adjust to kind of being with other people and talking and you sort of got tired, you know, tired from interaction, which is totally understandable. So it was great that we had time together and space apart. I can only imagine what it was like coming back to your everyday life of San Francisco with your kids and your family and your colleagues around. Um, having been so alone was it was it strange yeah i i wasn't used to it the noise is the thing that really got to me um because if you think about walking anywhere in nature the sounds that you hear are very pleasant mm. the sounds that you hear in a city are not and there's a lot of them and they're very loud and so part of the the really most difficult part of the enjoyable part of the trail made it the hardest thing to get used to again was you open up your senses. So you're very, very attuned in wilderness to listening, to listening to the birds, the wind. There's so many sounds that you hear, mainly related to wind or animals making them. And so you've opened up your senses and then you come back to the city and you realize how much we have to close down our senses in order to survive. That if you're that sensitive to sound or smell or the bright lights from cars or whatever it is, you would go crazy. I often think if I had to choose between all the senses, which one I would elect to lose, if I had to lose one, I always feel it would be hearing because I think perhaps it's undervalued or perhaps... Um, I feel like I take in most of my information visually, but not that I would like to lose my hearing. But I think often, I'm, I was just surprised to hear you say hearing because when I think of you on the trail, I think of all the sights that you saw, mainly because I've seen some of your pictures and because my memory is more a visual memory. When you're talking about the trail and, and how peaceful and content you were, it just reminded me of Sapiens, which I'm reading at the moment, which kind of talks about how we think we've progressed so far from the days of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, but in fact, they had a much more content and fulfilling life in many ways, although it was shorter and more perilous. Their days were spent with much more leisure time, more sense of community, and they were obviously at one with nature, and that gave them a peace which subsequent communities have not really had. It's a great book. I read a, it as well. I liked it a lot. It is a great book. When you first started your coaching practice, vitality.guru, right? That's it, yeah. You came up with this amazing frame, um, which is that we only live for a thousand months. So I think most of us agree that 83 years is a good lifespan. Um, but a thousand months, which is how many months that equates to, seems very short. Very often we view success as how much we've acquired, what status we have, how other people perceive us in the pecking order, all things which are to do with doing and having, and yet the one thing that we're really all running out of is those thousand months. You know, I've only got a couple of hundred left, and so actually how we spend our time is really perhaps an interesting way to measure our own success. It's something, strangely, that comes in to play very often 
at the end of our lives when we realize, gosh, the only thing I really regret is that I spent so many hours in the office or so little time with my family or so little time engaging with what really profoundly moves me and connects with me. So A Thousand Months is sort of about trying to help people address those issues around how they spend their time for themselves a little bit earlier than at their deathbed. It's the the frame that we put on prioritizing time is, is a really curious one. I think the problem we all face is that society is addicted to being busy. And so we're surrounded by addicts to the view that how much time I spend at work defines who I am and that's valuable. That gives me currency, that gives me validity. And as we know, we all validate our, our own choices. I mean, I try and surround myself with people who validate my views that time is precious, time for myself, time for the people I love is more precious than money and status. But those people are few and far between. Naturally, people defend their own choices and will say, you're crazy, you're crazy. How could you walk out on status, power, and money when all you're getting in return is just time for yourself? Time for yourself to them has to feel less than the things which they're striving to achieve. Of course, the moment you go, go cold turkey on busy in the world of status and money, then time seems like the most important thing. And I would do anything I could to ensure that I had time in my life. I realized that being busy just took such a huge toll on me. I didn't know myself. I didn't have time to think. Um, and that level of distraction from oneself was an addiction. The, the addiction that I had was to accomplishment. So in order to accomplish more and more and more, and those accomplishments didn't necessarily find themselves grounded in a reality, but they were things that one does in work life to, to move forward. And the entire system seems designed to make sure that we are so busy that we don't have the time to sit back and think. How long were you on the Pacific Coast Trail before you got into the groove of walking in nature as distinct from fretting and worrying? Literally, it took months. I, I, I left the job and then four days later started hiking. And um, it was literally like coming off. I've never been um, or taken hard drugs, but I can imagine like taking those drugs is it's hard to get rid of them because there's this feeling which is the sense of power and control that I thought I had um, and status and money and suddenly you're walking and it, none of those things matter. It was a gradual process, but there was definitely, it was still very painful and jarring and a physical detachment from a sense of who I was before I did the trail. Mm. Well, it's incredibly sobering to hear you say that it took months to come off the addiction of being busy and that you're still dealing with that now. And when you realize how profoundly one can become addicted to that, one begins to see the problems that people face in reevaluating their lives. Because I think a lot of people 
feel on some deep soul level that they would like to reclaim more space for themselves and their loved ones and more time for the things that they really care about. But because of the addiction, they can't. And it is, it, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. to. Some people, of course, don't even get to that place where they realize they want to spend more time with the people they love and themselves until they have no time left. Having been lost, having allowed yourself to be lost, having lived with that unpredictability and lack of schedule and lack of position and possible chaos or the possibility of chaos, how do you think it will occur differently to go back into the structure? Because when you were in structure last time, you hadn't had the experience of the other. You hadn't come from a place where your schedule was your own. I had a lot of myths about myself that I had to uncover. And one of them was that I really, that there was a good and healthy separation between me and my work. Um, I don't think there really was a very healthy separation between me and my work. So going back into it, knowing what those boundaries are, not taking every crisis personally. I know that I like alone time. I, I want to feel and experience life. I want to be, you know, talking to people and I want it to be part of my adventure as opposed to this separate thing that I'm somehow doing. Coaching seems like the perfect thing for you to be doing because you've got all this experience, all this all this humanity to offer people and it like you've taught me so much. So I'm really excited that this is something you've been doing for a few years. And one thing I, I've really been reminded of by our conversation is how the kind of coaching that that I love is so two-way. It's it's like dancing in the moment with someone else. And I think anyone listening to a good coaching session often may not be aware who the coach is and who the client is because we're bouncing off each other. And, you know, you are my younger brother, but I've learned so much from you over the years. And all our conversations, I come away learning about you and I come away learning about me. And and that's, you know, that's the most rewarding thing about our, about our conversations, um, which mostly take place on the phone long distance. So it's nice to be in the same hmm. room with you. I'm also really looking forward to catching up with you again as you continue your journey and we continue to learn from each other. Well, I love you so much and you're amazing, brother, and you're going to do so great. <laughs> Thank you so much to Raimi for being Raimi. In the next episode of Podship Earth, we talk hemp, which it turns out has been used for more than 8,000 years to make everything from paper to Levi's jeans. Then, in the 1930s, the new plastics industry was so threatened by hemp that they had it outlawed until 2019. I visit with hemp farmers in California who are on a quest to bring this mighty plant back to life and to use it to help defeat climate change. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have a week filled with brotherly love. <laughs> <laughs>